welcome back to this episode of Tales of the Resistance. I'm Mara Zelt, one of the hosts of today's podcast, and I'm joined today by Beth. She is our social media manager. Hello, and welcome back. And by Saskia, who is one of our undergraduate interns at the I Am Responsible Project. Hi, everyone. So on today's episode, we're going to bring to you a few topics that have been percolating in the news over the last few weeks and that we saw and thought were super interesting, grabbed our attention, and we wanted to talk about them more together, but also to share them with you. So let's just go ahead and jump right into it. The first topic is an announcement of something that came out from the Avant Project. Now, the Avant Project um, is something that's going on in the EU. It's working on on trying to come up with some alternatives to antibiotics. They're, they're specifically looking at alternatives for antibiotics, maybe within livestock, which we know is a huge user of antibiotics. And so they wanted to do a little bit of a survey of what are the current attitudes about antimicrobial use and possible antibiotic alternatives for agricultural producers, for veterinarians who treat those animals, and then maybe even for consumers who are going to be eating those products based on these different interventions that they identified were either already in use or maybe some alternatives that are kind of already being used in human medicine or maybe that are, are a little bit more experimental. We'll go ahead and link the the survey within the show notes for this episode if anyone is interested in reading more. And so they talked about about these different interventions, and then they asked farmers and veterinarians and consumers, what do you recommend for the veterinarians? What do you use for the farmers? What would you accept from the consumers? Or, well, what would you accept or be interested in for all of these people? And it was kind of interesting because none of them were like negative necessarily. There was a lot of that were neutral, like people probably didn't know that much about it, but there was really positive, some really positives for some of the more preventative measures and not so much for what we would call real alternatives to antibiotics. So like the introduction of phage therapy in livestock animals. I mean, you can kind of see that because it's like, well, anything new is a little bit, we're a little bit leery of. But I also think it kind of gets into the whole food safety. People are always more concerned with stuff that is changing within the food supply. So that was kind of my takeaways from the piece. And I wanted to ask you guys first, I don't think maybe you guys are so familiar with all of these interventions. I'm going to read the list, but I want to know from you guys, how would you have answered this? Basically, how do you feel about these interventions and how acceptable do you think they would be for animals that you were going to eat or either the the meat or some of the products um, from? So I'll just read the list and we can kind of talk about what they are if you're not 100% sure. So there's biosecurity for the animals, biosecurity for the humans or the farm workers on the farms, chichasan, which is, a, and I may have pronounced that wrong, but it's a nutritional supplement. A fecal transplant, like I mentioned, some feeding strategies, uh, immunostimulants, phages, and probiotics. So which of those you think it would both be acceptable to you to eat a food from? Something I noticed when I was reading was that some of these, they have like a little explanation under them, but I didn't really have a clear idea of what all of them were. I'd heard of some things, you know, phages or the biosecurity measures that we've talked about on our podcast before, but I hadn't heard of some of these other ones. 
I wondered how they introduced them and explain them in the survey, because as a, just a normal consumer, that's what I consider myself relatively, maybe I'm even a little bit more informed now than the average consumer. That question of if they knew exactly what these really meant is something that I thought was interesting and kind of played into the data maybe of how much they were interested in those measures being used. Because if they didn't really know what it was, then were they going to choose that one as one of the alternatives that they would like for antibiotics? For myself, I do think that the preventatives are the easy, well, I don't actually know how much all these things cost. That's actually something I was interested in knowing too, is how much do these interventions cost and how effective are they? I didn't know if they didn't have that information at all. And that's just, it's such in the beginning stage, they don't. But I think it would be really interesting to see if they could get to a place they could break down, okay, biosecurity measures cost this much and have about this much percent of efficiency. And then the consumer could be like, okay, well, I'm willing to pay this much extra for this much extra efficiency in this security measure. So that's something I don't know, but I'm going to say that biosecurity measures might be cheaper than some of, the one, of these ones. And so, and they're good preventative. So those are good ones. I'm assuming that things like the fecal transplant costs more. Uh, maybe feed strategies are a little bit cheaper. Phages, I'm curious about how much that costs. Are they like in the beginning stages and they had to do a lot of research? I guess I'm making this too complicated, but they're all interesting. I just want to know which ones work the best, I guess, to know whether I want to choose those. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I, I kind of think like, in general, when we talked about, you know, we had a conversation, I think, about uh, risk assessment and um, how do we quantify the impact of any of these interventions on possible antimicrobial resistance. Um, and there's just so much data that we don't have. You know, like you're saying, we, we still are learning what the efficiency level of some of these would be, not just as they are proposed, but are they actually practiced on the farm? I do think in terms of the cost, in my understanding, and, and Saskia, you might know this more than me because uh, for our listeners, Saskia actually has some more ex farm experience than Beth or I. But um, in terms of how it's actually practiced on the farm, I think that biosecurity is kind of a part of these. Like biosecurity is to prevent sickness by the animal by sort of reducing the possible ways for infection to get to the animal. But then you would want to kind of match that with, okay, now we have a sick animal. So rather than treating the herd, when we have really strong biosecurity, we can kind of isolate that animal and treat it with an alternative intervention, maybe, or antibiotics, and then not have to treat the herd. And they kind of go together. Maybe, Saskia, do you want to weigh in on this? And like, because you do have a little bit of an ag background, not no, Not necessarily right. ag production, but did you already you know, know about these and, and do you practice any of them on your guys' farm? Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, to be honest, I don't know all of them. So I, I'm not completely sure what pages mean. I, I tried to look it up really quick. Um, but yeah, we, we used to have a lot of swines or pigs at home. And yeah, since we, we produce livestock, we use some of those techniques. Um, so the goal is to keep like antibiotics low. And um, usually we try to treat only the 
the sick animal and not the whole herd. So we usually use vaccines to uh, treat them. The biosecurity measures on animals essentially removing them from the herd when they're sick? Um, no, we usually, we usually just have them there. Yeah, we don't have like a special place. We don't have it anymore. So we stop this and only focus on our crops right now. But no, we, we let them with all the other pigs and just treated them where they are with vaccines. This is pretty common in most um, of the farms in Germany. I mean, it can be different. I don't know how it is here in Nebraska or in the United, in the United States. I also know that many people uh, feed like the whole herd, all the pigs in the stable through like the, the food they get. But I really don't know how it is here in the United States. Biosecurity is to prevent the animals from getting sick. It's not just about the isolation of sick animals. It's, it's really about, okay, we're going to look at the whole system as like, where are the entry points and where are all the possible ways that um, a disease could come in? What are the vectors? So there's animals themselves, there's the human workers, there's like pests, so flies or mice or pets, um, any of those things, um, any surfaces, any feed, the cars and trucks that come into the operation, all of those things are considered vectors. And in a biosecurity measures are to basically clean and control all of those possible vectors to prevent any possible infection of the herd. It's sterilizing everything that comes in. And when you go into one of those operations, you have clothes that every piece of clothes that you wear on the outside of the building is left in the outside of the building side. And then the showers, you go through the showers, clean everything off. And there's a whole new set of clothes that are only on the inside of the building that don't leave the building. And then everything on the inside to bring anything in, it has to be sterilized. And then everything in stays in and everything out stays out. That's kind of the biosecurity measures. And that's that's on pig farms here in the U.S., but maybe some of the other um, species are not quite as uh, much, although dairy farms are pretty biosecure too. That's kind of biosecurity measures are, are about like that sort of sterilization of the system. And then the sort of isolation of the single animal to treat it is kind of the, the next step in there is like, all right, we're we're trying to keep animals as as healthy as possible. But now if we do have a sick animal, what do we do with it? And as they're moving away from herd treatment, there's still a lot of herd treatment, especially in poultry, where they do give all of the animals the same thing. But like Saskia was saying, because there ha there's less ability to identify a sick animal in poultry, there's more use of preventative medicine like vaccines than there is necessarily in, in like pigs. I have a and question about... Oh. Go ahead. About the fecal transplant, it's just saying that newborn piglets are exposed to feces from healthy pigs um, early in life. How are they exposed? Like, is it in their food or something? Like, how does that work? Do you well, know? a fecal transplant in a human is is the transplant of fecal matter to another person's um, colon, basically. Fecal transplant. There's a little bit of an ick factor there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think... I think this is what some of the people are are concerned about as a use in humans, and they're probably even more concerned about it as a possibility of, oh, that's an animal now that we're going to eat. And it was kind of interesting. So phages, basically phages is a virus that um, kills bacteria. So you can kind of, I don't know, say design or identify the right virus to infect 
the bacteria that is impacting the animal. So then you basically give the animal a live virus and that will kill off the bacteria that is harming them. Theoretically, of course, this is a really good idea because we know that bacteria, they're constantly evolving. And the cool thing about phages is that they're also constantly evolving. So you could get to the point where you have the resistance that the bacteria naturally developed to the phages initial like method of attack. And then the phage develops a resistance to the resistance. And so they're constantly sort of doing your own medical development work for you. But I think everybody is a little bit leery of put a virus in me or some animal and expect that it will always just kill the bacteria and nothing else bad will ever happen. I remember when we first started talking about phages, that was my initial reaction. Like, that sounds like a horrible idea. Those viruses are going to become more and more powerful. (laughs) and They're just going to start attacking humans. That was my thought. But um, yeah, of course, I've learned a little more about them. But that knee-jerk reaction of, uh, no, that sounds like a horror movie or like a, (laughs) you know, like a Jurassic Park gone wrong. Um, The idea, oh, we're just going to put a virus inside of you and kill the bacteria that way is something that doesn't have a great probably initial reaction to when you're first learning about it so I was also wondering how I know that phages are pretty there's a lot of research going on about them but they're still relatively in the newer side of research and I wonder if that is a more expensive um, alternative to antibiotics at this moment until they start getting more more research done Well, it's definitely not as cheap as antibiotics, but it is something that has been researched for a while, maybe more so in like Eastern Europe and uh, Russia, but it does require more research than we have right now to necessarily have the right identified phage for all the different diseases, but it's not as as in its infancy as um, As I necessarily expect. Mm -hmm. Because when you haven't heard about it, you think, oh, that's a pretty new, this is something new that hadn't been done before. But you're right. I think I remember that we were talking about this in the last one of the other podcasts about how it's pretty new for like the U.S., but other people have been working on this for a long time. Well, that's my understanding. And again, I'm not an expert. We'll find some some more definitive information and put that in the show notes, I think. Okay. This is a good transition talking about phages and the evolution of um, bacteria and stuff into the article that you brought up, Beth, Mm -hmm. um, if you want to introduce it. Yeah, so I chose the article, Replaying Evolution May Help Avoid Antibiotic Resistance. It is about a research technique um, that's being conducted. They are focusing in on a Colombian biologist named Camilo Barbosa. Essentially, they're looking into replicating the process of evolution. It's tied into phages because phages, just like we were talking about before, they um, evolve just like bacteria. And so they can follow along uh, with the bacteria's evolutionary development. What I found interesting about it was it's just like another way of thinking about it, about AMR, of antimicrobial resistance. I just found it interesting because usually when you read 
an article or research that's being done, and this is just my experience, it's usually about developing new antibiotics. A lot of times those developments happen from small changes to existing antibiotics or researching a new a new source of antibiotics. That's most of what the research seems to be. And then there's phage research. But this almost seems like another kind of research. I thought about it like, um, I guess I think about it as three different main kinds of um, approaches to the AMR crisis. Is you've got the, we have got to slow down the poor stewardship of antibiotics. And then we've also got to develop more antibiotics really quickly so that we don't have as many people that are going to get sick. Because whether we slow the use of antibiotics down enough, there's going to be a lot of antibiotics used properly. And this kind of seems like the third long-term, like, okay, so what can we do about this on like a, a more permanent, more of a long-term solution maybe if we could figure out how bacteria are becoming resistant then maybe we could stop them becoming resistant at all or or, you know so I'm not sure where the research will go but it seems like a long-term research solution and I thought that was interesting. I agree I'm I'm not familiar with this uh, research and there was not in the article itself like a ton of of details on that Basically, it describes that he is looking at trying to identify the the different pathways that a single organism might develop an evolutionary response that is resistance to an antibiotic. And basically, the theory is that there are only so many ways that you can do that. And which one can we identify or predict even which is the most common? Because if you can do that, then you can kind of get ahead of the resistance game. And that was like an interesting thing. I'm going to throw this to you guys in terms of kind of being newer on the antimicrobial resistance learning thing. But this is something that took me a little bit of a while to sort of identify that the theory of antimicrobial resistance is is that not that it can be solved necessarily, but that it can be managed, you know, Mm -hmm. that with a sort of group effort. So we're all going to use our antibiotics more wisely. We're going to try and stay healthy. And and then we're going to get some some alternatives researched and, and stuff like that. But that it's always a management because evolution is a constant. So this is kind of an interesting, yes, it's saying, yes, evolution is constant, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't solve for it in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe I want to know from you guys, what had what had been your understanding of how we're going to address antimicrobial resistance? Did you feel that we were working for a solution or, or management? What, what was your feeling beforehand? I would say, I mean, I've never really, really thought about it, but it makes sense. That it's, it's more like a management and not that we're trying to find a solution. Yeah, no, that's, that's all I can say about this. It makes mm-hmm. sense what you're saying that we we're looking for like a management and not for the solution, you know. Yeah. Um, when I first was getting into it, my thought was we're researching for a solution. But then as you get into it, and you realize, oh, it's management. You, it's not really a possibility to solve this because it's you know naturally occurring. But that's kind of where I thought that this research was interesting because like it almost sounds more like researching from a more permanent solution 
I guess in my my head, I would try to visualize it and how exactly this would work. And I was like, somehow or another, this research would produce a way that when you're giving the antibiotic, it stops any of the other bacteria that survive the antibiotic from becoming resistant. I guess from my understanding of it, it would be recognizing that there will be evolution, that there is going to be resistant development to whatever we give, not just the medicines, but everything. There's constant evolution, right? We use antifungals, we get antifungal resistance. We use antimalaria drugs, we get antimalarial drug resistance. We use antiseptics, we get sanitizer tolerance. And evolution is going to happen among these microbial species. It's sort of like, okay, this is a given, but but when you're talking about gene mutation, um, there's only so many ways that a gene can mutate because that's usually starts with a single pair changing, right? But mutations have a limited capacity to change. And then the actual mechanics of resistance, there's only so many of them. So if you put those two things together, then you can say, okay, so there's a limited number of ways that evolution can occur. If we can use big data research to map that out in terms of what is the most likely, this is getting back to our topics of of risk. How do we understand and quantify what is the most likely, what is probable? And probability is really hard for, I think, lay people to understand, but really important to understand things like risk and and this sort of thing and say, okay, now we're going to focus our research efforts because we think that this bacteria is going to evolve this way to this kind of pressure so we can get ahead of it. Mm. Or or like you said, maybe even include in the initial dose uh, some kind of inhibitor for that kind of mutation. So they might go together a little bit, It's kind of an interesting concept. Let's take all of the possible mutations and evolutionary responses and and try to rank them in terms of what is the most likely and then use that information to inform what we're doing in terms of interventions. It's kind of a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Well, this was fun getting a chance to hear all the latest news articles that have been coming out. Very informative. I hope we do one like this again. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. 